I learned recently that Christians in northern Nigeria continue to send urgent requests of prayer because they're under attack by the Fulani militants after repeated uh, incursions by attackers against Christians there. Last year, attackers killed seven while burning down 13 homes. And in July of 2020, the militants displaced 500 in an attack that left eight dead. Why does evil hold sway over the world? Why are God's faithful persecuted? When thinking through this and scores of other examples, could the solution be our perception of things? That our view of things is actually quite limited. The Bible reveals information we would not know otherwise unless God revealed things about himself and about us, about us to us in his written word. It reveals a broader perspective of, his, of history. It reveals things from the vantage point of the unseen realm of the divine. You may be sitting here right now. You think, I've got 20-20 vision, Pastor Garrett. But do you see things in truth? The biblical view is that we often do not acknowledge God's reign. However, that failure to pay respect to him does not diminish his power whatsoever. You see, friends, according to God's word, everything is dependent on God. He rules in providential care over the universe. He has always proved in the word and in redemptive history that when all human resources have failed and the faithful look as if they are on the verge of extinction, God will step into the breach to bring salvation. His special rule, his kingdom, does not come from human activity of any kind, nor does it evolve from this present age. It comes through the direct intervention of God. Human empires rise and fall. There are times, though, especially right now, because we're like, we're often like teens, we're often like young people, we can only, we often Focus on only what's immediately in front of us. So when you're here and you're a young person today and, young, and older folks are talking to you about that, that's from experience, we've done a lot of it in our lives. We often see things from such a limited perspective and everything in front of us right now feels so big and things seem unshakable that are wrong in our, in our world. But often what you'll, you'll discover if you live long enough and if you know history and the word of God, these things fall and give rise to another thing and the next thing. No human has any permanence. The destiny of the world is entirely in the hands of God. And God's word makes it plain that we still live with uncertainty in this fallen world but his rule remains certain. 
According to Scripture, particularly this morning in the Gospel according to Mark, we are reminded that God's kingdom now is veiled in mystery. God's word has never hidden that from his people. That's why he's spoken to us by his word. It just assumes blindness to the truth. And the clue to understanding God's rule right now is not a scepter that God uses to break the bones of his opponents, but the cross on which the blood, on which the blood of the Son of God was shed. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I'm going to give a little bit of background and context. Mark's Gospel, written by John Mark, who was a traveling companion and helpful friend to the Apostle Peter, reveals that Jesus is leading the new exodus that was promised in the Old Testament. Not out of Egypt, but worse, out of the bondage of sin. And this, of course, was promised by Isaiah because he foretold of a king who comes in humble weakness and service by death as the redeeming substitute for God's people. According to Mark, the way of those who are privileged to know this is to take up the cross and follow Christ, but to repent of their sins and trust in him. And so far, uh, in Mark, the first 13 verses has showed that Jesus is the true trailblazer and Messiah that was promised who would lead God's people home. He makes the way for us home through his perfect life and through his substitutionary death and resurrection. We've learned about John the Baptist, the final and last old covenant prophet. He was baptizing many in, in the Jordan River to reenact the former exodus and call the people to repent and trust in God. Jesus, the sinless one, appears at the Jordan to identify with God's people and, and, their, and, and their need. And his humility is on display. And the Father, as we learn, declares him as the Son. The Holy Spirit descends upon him and anoints him to show us the pathway to the true promised land. And eternal life comes by trusting in him. Now we're at chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 this morning. Excuse me, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Hear now God's holy word. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is God's word. You know, here's why we need this passage today. It doesn't matter how accomplished or how broken your life might look from a human perspective. It doesn't matter how accomplished or how broken your life might look from a human perspective. What matters is what you look like in truth. And the truth of the matter is that the effect of the fall on human beings is so profound that it cannot be redressed by human effort. But there's good news, beloved. God achieves what we cannot. Redemption from our sin debt and restoration with God through His Son. 
That is the most important thing you can understand today. It's not the next outfit you put on. It's not the next interview you're stepping into. It's not your next doctor's appointment. It's not even the immediate, the immediate sense of the roads outside. This is the most important thing that God has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he calls us all to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus alone. What wonderful news. God's holy love and righteousness pursues us to reconcile us with himself through Jesus' perfect life and his shed blood on the cross. I've come to talk to you about that today. Only he can give a righteous and lasting relationship. Verses 14 and 15 establish the framework of what's going to follow in the following narrative. And the events of Jesus' Galilean ministry to a hostile world that has imprisoned John the Baptist and will seek to destroy Jesus. Mark gives a summary of the message that Christ preached. Jesus preached the good news of the impending kingdom, rule of God, and fulfillment of the Old Testament. And Jesus preached this first in Galilee, signaling God's grace to any sinner, anyone, any sinner who would repent and believe. Jesus is for everyone. Here's the central point if you're taking notes. Trouble is everywhere. Trouble is everywhere. But praise God, there is good news in Christ. Praise God, there is good news in Christ. Two themes I want to highlight, two points this morning. Hope and summons. Hope and summons. Trouble is everywhere, but praise God, there is good news in Christ. Point number one, hope. Hope goes out to a hostile world. Hope goes out to a hostile world. Beloved, today we are tempted to be unthankful and cynical about a lot. Many of you perhaps grumbled about a number of things this morning. I'm often tempted to every day. And to be cynical about people in our lives and about circumstances. We can be the fan in the stands. Oh, they're, they're going to blow it. They're just going to blow it. And just have that attitude on and on and on. But what does God's word offer us? Hope. But let's look at some rough things here. Here, John the Baptist was put in prison. What now? What now? The text goes right forward. Jesus, who John said was the greatest, is now present. God has not abandoned his people. He never has and never will. First sub-point. God works hope when things seem dark. God works hope when things seem dark. Verse 15, all of a sudden, John is a victim of state violence, preparing our hearts that the world resists and always has resisted God's rule. No surprise there. Nevertheless, here, Jesus announces good news. There's bad news but there's even better news over here. And the NIV translation says after John was put in prison may cause the readers to miss a subtle connection to Jesus' own fate. It reads literally after John was handed over. Jesus also will be handed over. It's coming. Yet when Jesus is handed over, Mark wants us to 
to help us to see this brings the defeat of the powers of evil and the forgiveness of sins. It unleashes a new power in the lives of his followers who may suffer the same fate. John's being handed over opens the clear path for Jesus to step on the scene. Remember, John said, after me comes, after me comes. Well, here he is. And Jesus is being handed over, clears the path for victory for all who put their trust in him. Hope when things seem dark. Jesus went into Galilee. Don't miss that. Let's not, you know, belly flop over that line. Drive by it too fast like some of you do in your neighborhoods by the stop sign. We won't talk about that driving this morning. Let's not fly by this. He went into Galilee, the text says, and this again signals hope, and I'll tell you why. This connects with the Old Testament vision of the messianic son of man who was to receive God's kingdom and rule over all nations. Jesus did not begin in some gentle, quiet town, all snuggly and warm, but in Galilee, a large region known for its ethnic mixture, differences in speech that caused Judean Jews to view Galilee and its inhabitants with contempt. You know, Herod Antipas, who had imprisoned John, was the ruler of Gal- over Galilee, and thus Jesus was no safer from him in Galilee than John had been near the Jordan. But you see what Mark is showing us here? The messianic hope dawns in the darkest places. Jesus came to call not the righteous, those obnoxious, self-righteous ones in, in, in Judea, but sinners. That's every one of us. Every one of us are sinners. And the ultimate goal of God's redemption has always included the nations. And Jesus began in a place of conflict, a place of threat, of racial and ethnic mixture and busy activity. A place like the DMV. Why? Only Christ, the Savior of the world, can overcome the walls that sin, the walls of sin that separate us from God. And only Jesus can overcome the walls of sin that cause ethnic and cultural hostility and form in himself one true people of God, one true Israel in himself. This is not the main exhortation of the text as I'm preaching here, beloved. But as you see, Christ preaching to a divided, sinful world, maybe today, listening online or here present this morning, you see your need of God to free you from any prejudice in your heart. Ask Christ to fill you with love. Prejudice flees our hearts when we see others through Jesus' eyes. God loves all peoples and nations in offering them his Son despite their sin against them. That's what's always surprising is that God would love stinky, filthy, arrogant, selfish people like us who are so prone to boast, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not as bad as my sister or my brother or my neighbor. And this all wasted conversation in the presence of our holy God. Look at how our world stirs up hatred for one another. It's constant. It's 24-7. It's a hashtag away every day. We are divided in hostility today as we've always been, just as they were in Galilee. We've become a neighborhood without being a brotherhood. And there is a, const- a constant air of suspicion, isn't there today? Aren't you suspicious? You know, even when we walk around each other in the store, there's suspicion. 
and assigning of motives to others stirred up today in our media. Man wants unity, but they don't want unity in the truth. Critical theorists want a constant loop of criticism and accusation without any accountability for themselves. They want no category for sin, only that truth be based on someone's experience rather than the revealed word of God. Who can help sinful man? Well, not man, I can tell you that. Only Christ. Only Christ can help us. It is in Christ we learn that God created every one of us in his image. And when we hate someone who is different from us, culturally we are hating someone that God has made in his own image. Sin and rebellion against God is the natural disposition of us all. Sin blurs how we see one another, provoking more prejudice and hatred. This is wicked in God's sight. But God, in his amazing kindness, sends Jesus to a bunch of divided, motive-assigning, often hateful people. Jesus didn't die just to save one race or one group of people. Christ came for all. He's for all and for any and all who would believe upon his name. There is only one possible solution to the hostility man has toward God and one another, and that is a personal experience with Christ Jesus. Perhaps you've tried it your way. You've tried what cultural has told you to do. You've tried it man's way and all these things, and you've come up with the same result. Come to Christ. Repent of your sins and come to Christ. Let him transform you, change you every day, and fill you with the love of God. You see, in Christ, the chasm between sinful man and God is bridged, mediated, and the middle wall of partition between man and man is broken down. On that cross, Jesus made peace between sinners and God through his shed blood and his resurrection. He took on all our sins so we could be accepted by God. He was rejected so we could be accepted. And on that cross, Jesus makes peace between all groups because everyone is made level at the foot of the cross. Every one of us. There's not one in our world that doesn't need Jesus. We're all filthy sinners in God's sight. And every one of us needs Jesus. There's no boasting at the foot of the cross. Can you imagine a little bit of boasting at the foot of the cross where his blood was shed for us? It reveals how we need to all humble ourselves before God's provision and turn from our hateful ways and sinful ways. As one famous evangelist, my favorite evangelist put it, until people come to submit, submit to Christ as the Prince of Peace and receive his love in our hearts, tensions will increase, demands will become more militant, and a great deal of blood will be shed. That feels like a prophetic statement, doesn't it? Friends, Jesus entered into Galilee, into our hostile world, to overcome our sin by bearing our sin, by becoming sin for us at Calvary. You will find hope in no other. You will find peace in no other except Jesus Christ. When we are reconciled with God, a part of his kingdom, we are also liberated to be at peace with others. I love the love that's in our local church. It gives us an opportunity to say, look what Jesus does for us. We care about how others are treated when we have Christ in our lives. We care about how they are cared for. Why? Because Jesus cared for us. Will you not remember that as you deal with thoughts of anger and hatred and bitterness today? 
Will we not feel better by making penance? Uh, we will not. Let me just say this, be, be clear. We will never feel better by making penance for ourselves with a constant ever-changing call of culture to obey them and critical theory and all the slogans and hashtags that people constantly want us to subscribe to. That will not bring peace. It will not justify you in the eyes of the Lord. It will not fix your heart or change the nation. You have to have Christ. Jesus came into hostile Galilee after John's imprisonment. Oh, friends, don't. These marks stroke of the pen is, is, seems subtle at first, but it's weighty. Hope is here. The Prince of Peace, friends, will either rule your heart or you will. How do you think, though, it will go when everyone has the attitude of, I'm going to rule my own heart? I think we're seeing it lived out in our world. Second subpoint: God remains sovereign over a hostile world. God remains sovereign over a hostile world. Let's go back to that phrase, was handed over, arrested, John the Baptist there. Is this being handed over the result of wicked human schemes, or is it part of some divine plan? Well, let's look closely. The term handed over, arrested, in Mark's gospel combines not only the difficulties to which the faithful are subjected to, but also the superintending will of God that is operative throughout the word of God. So check it out here. Unbeknownst to the earthly powers who think they know everything. I've got news for the federal government. They don't. I've got news for earthly powers. They don't know everything. They're blind to anything that is happening on the spiritual plane. John's arrest sets the stage for the preaching of the gospel. So here's the question. If the kingdom of God has come near, why is it that God's purposes still seem to be eclipsed? Why does our, our world still groan under satanic tyranny? And why is the power of the wicked to oppress the righteous unabated? And the answer is this. God appeared to us in the flesh, fully human, to destroy the work of the evil one over us by fulfilling himself all righteousness that we never did and Jesus came to obey God in our place in this sinful world and then offer his life, his righteous life, perfect life as our substitute at the cross, bearing all of our guilt to die and be raised for our justification. And after paying for our sins, he promised to return one day with all power and to renew all things. He's called his disciples to follow his path of imaging the Lord in this fallen world now. To be his witnesses when, yes, when things are bad and tough because it glorifies the Father. You know, Herod may have thought he was getting his prophetic nemesis, John the Baptist, out of the way. But in reality, it is all part of preparing the way for the kingdom of God. All attention is now on Jesus. All attention, all eyes are on Jesus. The messenger may be in prison the message can't be stopped. The Apostle Paul once said, I am in chains, but the word of God is not. Jesus on the scene in Galilee was a bad setback for Satan after a resounding, resounding uh, defeat in the desert. Now the son of the living God is abroad in the land, in Galilee, doing exactly what the prophets had foretold, going to the nations. 
in our fallen world full of sin and death. There simply can be no good news if God does not break in with kingly authority. If God does not come with his sovereign rights as king of the universe, there will be only hopelessness in this world. So, beloved, doesn't this section of scripture call us to remember God's power and God's will and his rule? Doesn't it remind us that heaven's perspective and interpretation of life is the one that matters most? Young people, if you treasure that and learn that early, you'll be a more mature disciple. That heaven's perspective and interpretation of life is the one that matters most. Don't we need to feel the comfort of knowing God's will and rule are coming to pass? Yes, even while the forces of spiritual darkness scheme in their panic. And we're going to see them panic soon in Mark's gospel. Don't we need to dwell on God's pattern and call and, 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 and let that to cause us to trust in him more? Isn't Jesus worth our trust as we look back at our lives? Hasn't he always extended hope to the hopeless? Do you know Jesus came to free you from sin's penalty at the cross? From sin's power by his resurrection and sin's presence one day at his return? Do you know that? The kingdom, the freeing eternal joy from sin has indeed come near. The time has come. Friends, who else spoke this way? No one is like Jesus Christ. No one. Let's start praying that God would give us contentment in all circumstances, knowing that he's the one who creates all opportunities for us every day to serve him as he sees fit. Let's think more on this. Going to point two. Trouble is everywhere, but praise God, there is good news in Christ. Hope. Number two, summons. The good news summons sinners now to the true king. The good news summons sinners now to the true king. First subpoint: understand the identity of the king. Understand the identity of the king. What should jump out here is that other preachers like John the Baptist had a message to deliver. Jesus Christ is the message. In his own person, in his own life, Christ was both the messenger and message. Now note something here. The kingdom, which is of God and from God in the grammar here, is not a spatial category, but a dynamic event in which God intervenes powerfully in human affairs to achieve his unfading purposes. Don't think in spatial category. Think of a dynamic event. And preaching God's reign awakened in many in that day all kinds of images, motifs, and hopes. Some uh, in that day thought it only meant God was to oust the rulers of this world, to establish the kingdom of Israel in their present form. The concept of the kingdom most prevalent in the mind of the Old Testament Jew was that of God's visible conquest of his enemies, the vindication and restoration of his people, Israel, to the supremacy in the land, and the fulfillment of the promises of a Davidic throne and, upon, and a rule upon the earth in power and glory. Well, all those things were included, but it spoke of more than that too. God promised that when his kingdom was consummated, he was going to put all things right in this world, not just a region. To vanquish not just Israel's enemies, 
but all evil and sin. To conquer sin and eradicate sickness and to vindicate the righteous. Jesus announces that the kingdom has been inaugurated and it's moving towards being consummated. He claims to be the hinge of history. Okay, It's a big deal. To be the fulfillment of God's promises through the prophets. The satisfaction of long centuries of longing. And the, new, the entire New Testament just unpacks precisely how Jesus inaugurates the kingdom and what that means for us. And what enables Jesus to say that the kingdom of God is, is near, is at hand, is that he is among them. God is present. He has tabernacled amongst us. He's in the flesh. God has appeared in flesh. Jesus speaks for heaven on earth. We're gonna re- he's, Mark's going to show it. He's not relying on anyone else. He speaks with the authority of God himself. And here's what Jesus reveals to us about the kingdom of God. It's the redemptive reign of God. His sovereign lordship dynamically active, establishing his rule among men right now in a fallen world. It's both, their present, it's both the present spiritual reign of God and the future realm over which he will reign in power and glory. The already and not yet. By the way, I was at Westminster Theological Seminary picking up something up there in Pennsylvania. And and in the bookstore, they had a maternity shirt that said already and not yet on it. I thought that was pretty interesting. They were geeking out in theology, truly, there at the seminary. But yeah, the kingdom is both present, it is both the present spiritual reign of God and the future realm over which he will rule in power and glory. And there are two decisive and dramatic events in the manifestation of this kingdom. First, it was as it's fulfilled within history at the first advent of the Son, whereby Satan was defeated and men and women came into the experience of the blessing of God's reign. So today, I would encourage you all to go back and read John chapter, 1 John chapter 3 and the first 10 verses. He frames it up, the first appearing and the second appearing of, of the Lord. And he talks about just this very thing. First to come and defeat and redeem and do what we could not do for ourselves. The second coming... When we shall see him and we shall be like, we sh- John says we shall be like him and we shall see him as he is, is the consummation, the close of history. He would finally destroy his enemies, deliver his people and all of creation from evil and establish his eternal, eternal rule in the new heavens and new earth. You know, R.C. Sproul said something uh, here so important. Let me read this to you. He said, our king reigns now. So for us to put the kingdom of God entirely in the future is to miss one of the most significant points of the New Testament. Our king has come and has inaugurated the kingdom of God. The future aspect of the kingdom is its final consummation. All that to say is it should be impacting us right now. Jesus gave, beloved, let me do some application here. The fundamental mission of the church La Plata and the world are blind to his kingship. Sometimes I wonder if people in the church are blind to it. Church, we are given the task of making visible the invisible kingdom of God right now. By living under his word. How is the kingdom right now made visible? Through your life lived in submission to Jesus. Through your life 
through your life. And the fundamental task of the church is to bear witness, to bear witness to the kingdom, the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you about the king? Or are you about you? Are you obeying his word? Are you growing in the word? Are you telling people the word? If not, then you're not bearing witness to Jesus. You're bearing witness to the world. And that message leads to hell. Wives, is, is Christ ruling you? Can your family see his rule in your life? Husbands, what about you? Can your family see that Christ is ruling you? Children, you say you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Does your life show that you are submitted to Christ? Obeying your parents. Singles, who is your Lord? Your flesh, is it your sinful impulse or is it Christ? Second subpoint: understand repentance towards God. Understand repentance towards God. He says, repent. Jesus said, repent, just like John the Baptist did. Human beings do not bring in God's reign. God does, and the very announcement here that this, of this king contains the implicit demand. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's not just like, oh, no, that's a nice announcement. I appreciate that. No, no, no. That's a royal summons. It goes back to this point at large. And for the king to come and be announced is to call naturally to repent, to align yourself with the king. Are you with God or are you against him? Are you with Satan or are you against him? You see, friends, you and I have to make a decision. We have to make a decision every day. Whose side are we going to take? Jesus calls us to repent. Turn from our own kingdoms of rebellion against him. You either repent or you don't in response to God's initiative towards us, his summons. If you're not a Christian, God summons you to take his side against your sin. And if you are a Christian, you are called daily to repent and keep fixed on Christ. Here's some questions I want to ask you about repentance. You can go to a lot of services today or watch them online and never hear the R word, repent. And that's sad. It's such a huge part. Let me ask you something. Do you wince at the preaching of repentance? Jesus' call, his call here to repent is an invitation to switch allegiances. In Christ, there is an unleashing of grace that makes repentance possible. You see, Jesus is better than having our own way to make our own idols. We just often don't know it. We get so fixated on created things on this world, we are missing the prize. We are missing what's really valuable. And this is a summons. Come to what's better. Turn from that. Come to what has life in Christ. Don't wince at the preaching of repentance. Come and see Christ. Let me ask another question. Do you become angry at the preaching of repentance? We all can have a stubborn refusal to take our sinful state seriously. Now, now doggone it, we want others to take their sin responsibly. Can you believe her? Can you believe what he said? Can you believe how they acted towards me? We want them to take their sin heavily. 
But for our natural disposition is to not take our sin seriously. In the flesh, we would like to pin the blame on someone else or something else. Everybody today seems to qualify as a member of some victim group. I'm not trying to get you to think about that right now at all. Because there's one thing that's critically important. It's you and between you and God. And your sins have separated you from your holy God. You have to think about yourself before God Almighty. Let me ask you this. Do you have a shallow view of sin? Do you have a shallow view of sin? You know, many have no sense that they've rebelled against God. I mean, you, that's plain. That's a sin. <laughs> that's the day we live in, right? Do you have a shallow view of sin? Especially in the church. We, we got to do better than that. You know, someone wrote up a prayer in the spirit of satire to capture this pathetic attitude about sin that often, you know, comes into the church. It goes like this. Benevolent and easygoing Father, we have occasionally been guilty of errors of judgment. We have lived under the deprivations of heredity and the disadvantages of environment. We have sometimes failed to act in accordance with common sense. We have done the best we could in the circumstances and have been careful not to ignore the common standards of decency, and we are glad to think that we are fairly normal. Do thou, O Lord, deal lightly with our infrequent lapses. Be thy own sweet self with those who admit they are not perfect. According to the unlimited tolerances which we have a right to expect from thee, grant us as an indulgent parent that we may hereafter continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect, end quote. Boy, that, that was this, this paragraph I read, I found it in a book that was written over 20 years ago. When I hear people in the church talk about sin like this, I realize discipleship work needs to happen now. You have fundamentally misunderstood the word of God and what it means to be a Christian. If that's how you see God and if that's how you see yourself, I'm not that bad. I'm really a victim of just fundamentally, Lord, it's about my circumstances. You know, it's, it just misses it. It's just a shallow view of rebellion and transgression against our holy maker. It's obnoxious sin. It's, it, it's ridiculous. When you realize how holy God is. Next question. Do you have a shallow view of repentance? Do you have a shallow view of repentance? You see many seek to mask the B.O. of sin with perfume of religious rituals. Note to self. Perfume and cologne doesn't cover up B.O. Okay, We all should know that right? Well religious rituals will not do it as it comes to repentance. Cannot believe that they have, you know, you've done your duty before God while countless unconfessed sin and unrighteousness and self righteous boasting lurks within. Sometimes we can put on a real show of emotions in our religious activity. Some people think if, you know, if tears are really present and all this activity is really, that's necessarily the standard of repentance. No, no, it's a changed life. Just because someone's crying doesn't make them right. Have children. Watch that. Look at ourselves. Remember Huck Finn's alcoholic pappy? 
The old drunk cried and cried when Judge Thatcher talked to him about temperance and such things. He said he'd been a fool and was going, a, was a going to turn over a new leaf. Everyone hugged him and cried and said it was the holiest time on record. And that night he got drunker than he'd ever been before. Let me be crystal clear. You cannot turn to the Lord Jesus Christ unless you turn from your sins. If you're turning from sin, that means you're turning towards someone else, something else, towards Christ. If you're saying, Pastor Gary, I'm so uncomfortable, praise the Lord. Turn to Christ. Know that he alone can save you. When the prodigal son made up his mind to go to the father's house, he had to leave where he was to go to his father, didn't he? Now, some of you, you're walking in stuff you know good and well you should not be walking in. It's destroying your life. It's going to take you to hell if you don't get up and leave it and go to Christ today. And ask God to help you. Say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief that I might walk in righteousness and turn from this. Leave it behind. This is what the Bible talks about as godly sorrow. Any fool can show worldly sorrow can shed a few tears over their consequences. Godly sorrow cares about the Lord. We must be sorry, not just for the consequences of sin, not just because of what sin has done to our lives, but sorry because of what sin is and what it has done to the heart of God. My old pastor Jerry Vine said it well, sin is like a knife thrust into the heart of our loving God. Sin is what put Jesus Christ on the cross Sin can't be enjoyed when it's seen in its seriousness and ugliness. And some people wonder why they never have tears of rejoicing, Vine said. Some people wonder why they never have tears of rejoicing in Christ. But ladies and gentlemen, tears of rejoicing can never be experienced until tears of repentance are experienced, end quote. Third sub-point, understand belief in Christ. Understand belief in Christ. Jesus said here, believe Repent and believe. The term means to trust, commit your hope to eternal life in Christ. The word believe is a direction word. It involves moving in the direction of. And Jesus is talking about believing in your heart. He's not talking about mere getting the facts. Believe it in your heart. Romans 10.9 says if you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. <coughs> Repentance from sin is not an end in itself, but the first step of trust. We are none able, beloved, to satisfy God's demands on us, no matter how morally we try to live. That's why we believe in Jesus, who as God's Son can absorb the wrath of God and who is the perfect man who can satisfy the holy demands of God on our behalf. Can't you see why we don't end up, uh, why we, we don't want to end up trusting a little bit in ourselves and a little bit in Jesus, as the Vatican tells us to do? No, we want to realize that we are to rely on Christ fully. To trust in Christ alone for salvation. Repentance without faith, beloved. Let me say this. This is why repent and believe belong together. You see, repentance without faith could become remorse. And remorse can destroy people uh, who carry a burden of guilt. That remorse needs to be taken, uh, paired up alongside belief that Jesus paid it all. Praise the Lord. You feel both the weight of sin and the relief in Christ. You see the two, they go together. Conversion, becoming one of God's true people, becoming one of Christ's people, is turning with our whole lives from self-justification where we're like, look at my good deeds. I'm a decent person compared to Hitler, Lord, as if that's some kind of standard. 
turning from self-rule, from idol worship to the one true God. It's not a journey. It's in the sense of our conversion. Sanctification is a journey. But our salvation, our justification, it's not a journey. It's, 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 uh, it's you know, where everyone's just on different points trying to get saved. That's no, no. Salvation is in Christ alone. It's not reciting a creed or a prayer. It's not a, it's not a conversation. I'm so sick of that. It's not becoming a Westerner, even. It's not mere intellectual assent to facts. You know, people have facts about Jesus without it affecting their conduct, whereas trust, trusting in Christ alone, requires consequent actions in order to exist. You may have knowledge about God, but you may not know Him. Your life should show that you know Him. Repentance and faith are like two sides of a coin. Repentance means you turn away from something. Faith, belief in Christ, means you turn to Jesus, knowing He paid for our sins. And so I ask, friends, are you living in repentance and trust, or did you in the past just merely express intellectual assent and worldly sorrow? The King of Kings has arrived. Get the drama of the text here. He's arrived and rightly demands and summons all to follow and radically obey him. This is the unchanging and uncompromising message and vision of the eternal kingdom of God. Last subpoint: Rejoice in the good news. Rejoice in the good news. Here God in Christ offers forgiveness. God loves you. He's willing to forgive you of your sins. Your sin and mine. And restoration to all who would turn to him. He offers restoration here to all those who would turn from their own way of being Israel in their eyes. And believe in his proclamation of what it means to truly be God's people. Reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. There's that already, right? All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. That's kingdom right there. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me conclude. God's word makes it plain that we still live with uncertainty in this fallen world, but God's rule remains certain. Jesus came to Galilee, where Herod Antipas reigned and menaced God's messengers, He came to proclaim the new reality that the transcendent God who speaks from heaven is on the loose, giving his spirit, the authority to forgive sins, and the power to both destroy destroy the bondage of demons and to heal every malady. That's what we're going to find out. And the victory peels through Christ's ministry in many ways uh, in commands and announcements. Let me just quote Jesus where he will come out. He will say, be quiet, come out of him, be clean. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you well. Be open. He has risen. He is not here. Christians are not to be defeatist. 
but confident in their preaching. The victory has already been won. The kingdom of God has come near and is about to foreclose on the bankrupt kingdoms of this world. So Christian, does your life give evidence of the victories being won? Shouldn't we who've been delivered from God, excuse me, who've been delivered from sin's power and penalty, be announcing the kingdom of God is near. Come to Christ. Let all creation and all the nations hear this proclamation. Jesus saves. Give the winds a mighty voice. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Let the nations now rejoice. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Shout salvation full and free to every strand that ocean laves. This our song of victory. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are better than anything creation offers us. We turn to you in repentance and faith, trusting in your good promises. Keep us fixed on heaven. Make us ambassadors, faithful witnesses. In Jesus' name we pray.